0: When I study the old instruments, uh, it's this question of, you know, when you see the tool marks and you see the hand, you you know, they, that's what people say when they, when they are describing a scroll or, or an F hole that they, that they uh, recognize as being by some particular maker. They'll say that's the hand of so and so. And that's, I think that's a really, really nice way of putting it because you actually are seeing a tracing of someone's hand. You know, 300 years ago. And that's really particular and, and extraordinary.
1: Welcome to Rosin the Bow, an audio journey through the world of the violin family. Hi, I'm Joe McHugh. And early on in the Rosin the Bow project, I got in touch with violin collector David Fulton, who lives in Bellevue, Washington. We were in the process of arranging a time for me to interview him for the series, when he called to tell me that a violin maker from Iceland was visiting, and that if I wanted to interview him, I could drive up to Bellevue and do the interview at David's house. The violin maker's name is Hans Johansson, and David considers him to be one of the best violin makers in the world today. Hans had traveled from Iceland to Washington State so he could examine firsthand David's collection of remarkable instruments, including those made by Antonio Stradivari and Giuseppe Guarneri del Gesù. Here then is that interview.
0: Well, my name is Hans Johansson, and um, I'm an Icelandic violin maker. Um, I did spend some time in my youth in the United States because my father was a he worked for the airlines, and we lived in New York for a few years. But my basically my interest in violins and violin making began in the workshop of my grandfather, who was a cabinet maker. And I used to I used to spend a lot of time in his workshop, and he taught me a lot. Actually, I mean, I still I still I um, think that m- much of my the way I use tools and how I sharpen and so on ha- ha- has all come from him.
1: What was his name?
0: His name was Gudjon Haltersson. and uh, he made furniture. You know, he was a he was a he made kind of Scandinavian fifties, um, sixties furniture just on his own by hand. So he he really had the uh, he had a good you know good solid foundation in craftsmanship and and uh, and you know style as well, and a love of wood, and a love of wood, yeah, and. He just inspired me. Um, and then I had another grandmother who would drag me to concerts until I liked them. <laughs> Basically, uh, when I was uh, you know, very, very young in, in Reykjavik, in Iceland. Then when I got older, I, I, I must have been about 13 or 14. Uh, my grandmother, the one that introduced me to music. She um, gave me a book on violin making. It was the uh, it was the old uh, Heron Allen book, uh, "Violin Making as It Was and Is." So, it's a, it's a wonderful uh, book. It, it's not really, it's not excellent as a guide to to a vi- for a violin maker, but it it's just written in this beautiful kind of nineteenth century English style, and it's funny and, um, and at that time, I just decided that I. That was what I wanted to do for the rest of my life, and so I I, did, I lost all interest in in, in academic studies, <laughs> and um, I finished what I needed to finish in school, and then I uh, started to um, I contacted uh, workshops uh, in various places, and finally I was accepted as an apprentice in a in a workshop in Copenhagen by the name of Merling, and. Uh, which was a f- really fine old institution. And uh, I, I arrived in Copenhagen. Yeah, I was about 18 years old or so. And uh, very excited about starting my career as a violin maker. And the same day that I got there, the, the uh, Mr. Merling died. So, <laughs> so I spent the summer there, had some fun, and then went back to Iceland, um, eventually to, to um, try other opportunities. But I wasn't about to give up because I had already decided that this was the only thing that I could ever do. So did you take that as a sign? No, no, no. It was not an omen.
1: (laughs) No, no, no. You talked about your grandmother and how she would take you to all those concerts. And for someone who doesn't live in Iceland, what kind of music is there? Uh, Is there folk music, classical music?
0: Well, the thing is about Iceland is that Uh, When I was growing up in Iceland, um, uh, Iceland was a very isolated country, and it it always had been. Uh, It was difficult for people to get there. Um, It was, yes, a barren, isolated place, basically. But um, uh, always having been, nonetheless, a very cultured environment, Uh, but mostly about having to do with poetry and literature we didn't have a rich heritage in music uh, because the settlers who came to Iceland um, um, they did bring along with them some musical instruments although very rare um, uh, for example the um, there's an ancient instrument called the fiddla which is just a box with two strings on it basically interesting thing that about it though was that it was played with a bow and the um, I remember going to the National Museum and looking at these things, and I thought, well, where, where would that have come from? Because there's not a lot of written about it. But um, a lot of the Norse that came to Iceland were, had their origins in Norway. And um, the story goes that uh, in hundreds of years before that, people who had been doing their Viking trips uh, to the east... And among the places that they went to, were, went as far as, as, as um, Istanbul and even further east. So it's not unlikely that they had been uh, come into contact with uh, bowed string instruments. Because as we know, the, the bowed string instruments uh, have their origins in India and China, or in, and or China. And then slowly sort of moved into uh, the Middle East and through Northern Africa into Europe. But it's just as likely that the Viking, or the the, uh, the Norse people, would have been sub- uh, uh, introduced to the bowed string in the east, and um, in fact, some of these uh, these primitive bowed stringed instruments they didn't have a fingerboard; they were just the strings were just loose on top of the of the of the soundbox, and they would play by just touching the strings, just like people do in Mongolia, for example. And uh, another interesting thing is that um, the uh, the strings were made of ha- horsehair and which which actually sort of um, reflects the tradition from from pe- places like Mongolia where they where they make bowed in- stringed instruments with ho- horsehair strings uh, very interesting actually and there are there are poems, quite old you know ancient poems that talk about Horsehair as a string in an instrument. I saw someone perform on a Mongolian horsehead fiddle. Incredible instrument, really beautiful. And they have horse heads on those instruments, you know. And their their culture is revolves around the horse. And interestingly enough, the the Norse people that went all the way there east, they took horses with them. And the the Icelandic horse today is extremely similar to the you know mongol horses it's and genetically it's almost the same Mm. if i go back to the reasons why iceland was very isolated and it um, didn't have a rich musical culture it only had a a literary um, storytelling and um, poetic culture Uh, so we never had many musical instruments and uh there was there was a song a traditional type of song which was uh, a very ancient way of singing in fifths um which you can find in other places for example Yugoslavia and other places fr- from the middle ages but musically speaking uh nothing really profound happened in Iceland until the 20th century i mean that's That's when people started to become um, exposed to classical music and folk music from other other countries, so that was not <laughs> the reason why I became interested in making instruments uh, not you know not my background as uh, from my 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 national background so who were the musicians you looked up to when you were growing up? Well, when I was a teenager i I loved jazz, so I played um I played jazz with friends uh, on violin and guitar, um, but I yes, jazz violin. I learned to play um, jazz licks on a violin and, and used to fool around with my friends. Um, actually, that's one of the reasons why I became interested in violin making rather than maybe you know guitar making or or something other. But um, how'd you get your first violin? How'd that happen? Um, let me think. I bought a violin uh, a su- one summer I had you know worked I had worked uh, everyone in Iceland when I was a teenager everyone had work and we we could make quite a bit of money in the summertime working in fish factories or what have you. And I, I, I bought my first violin. It wasn't a very interesting violin, but it suited me anyway. Do you know why you bought a violin? I probably bought a violin because I I just found it from the very start I found it very um, sort of enticing and really kind of mysterious uh, object or a mysterious instrument related you know in relation to other instruments but uh, there had been an uncle in my family who had was very musical and and owned a violin and this violin was hanging on my grandfather's wall Uh, and I was I, I was always quite fascinated by this. I wasn't allowed to touch it much. But when I became a, uh, when I got to be a teenager, I I got permission from my grandmother to uh, to uh, actually take it apart. <laughs> so I I actually dismantled it, you know, with a kitchen knife. And um it, it, it fortunately I I learned, you know, when when I had already studied violin making, I I went I saw it again and And fortunately, it wasn't a very valuable instrument. It was just, (laughs) it didn't have any very much, you know, uh, artistic or or intrinsic value. So, but from that, I probably just, you know, kind of fired my imagination up to find out how something works. So after what
1: happened in Denmark, uh, you went to England and went to the Newark school. Uh, Tell me about that.
0: When I had finished, uh, after the summer in in Denmark, I went back home to Iceland and um, I met a musician there, a cellist, a very fine cellist named Havli de Hallgrimsson, who played in um, Scottish National uh, Orchestra and had lived in Scotland for many years. He uh, was living in London at the time, and he uh, persuaded me to try and, go and apply for the school in Newark in Nottinghamshire in, in England because it was a very very fine fine um, school at the time. It had actually it had been recently founded. I think it probably had been in the fifth year when I when I was there. So in, in 1977 I, I applied and I got a, a place there and uh, it was a time it was an incredible time because you know how it is sometimes in the school situation there sometimes there are just years where something happens you know there's a kind of energy in the air and everyone was incredibly passionate about what they were doing um and there were people in my year and and in the years surrounding my year that really you know became top notch instrument makers and and violin um um experts people like um John Dilworth and Roger Hargrave, Julie Reed, who is, is running now the, uh, a very fine sh- shop in New York City, Anne Hussey, who is now the curator, um, head curator at um, the, um, at the museum, museum of Musical Instruments in Paris, you know, loads of people that have become influential and um, also, you know, a handful of really, really fine makers.
1: And uh, what was your command of English at the time?
0: My, I, I spoke English very well because uh, when I was eight years old, I moved to uh, the United States with my parents. And my father worked for the airline, and um, uh, eight years old, I, I arrived in New York City, and, and I, I lived there until I was 16 or 17. So, um, so I, the language wasn't a problem for me. Um, what did your parents think of you becoming a violin maker? I never had anything but you know total support from my family. They never wanted me to be a priest or a, <laughs> or, a or a surgeon or anything. Actually, I wanted to become a surgeon, but but once I in, uh, once I saw you know, got introduced to the violin, that that was it. I can see the parallel. Yeah. <laughs> yes, I, I can. Yeah, it's it's really a fascination for you know how how things work and. Uh, uh, mysterious mystical things and and how they're connected to actual sort of physical attributes do you mm. also do restoration work on violins no i've never done any repairs or restoration except you know uh, occasionally uh, mostly you know living in iceland uh, there there's an exceptional uh, musical activity in iceland and has been for the past maybe 20, 30 years. And for a population of 360,000 people, that's it's quite extraordinary. So there's a really, really good symphony orchestra. Um, we have a wonderful new uh, um, hall, um, which has um, just recently, be- recently been built. And uh, so I do have a lot of connections with musicians, not only because I'm making, but sometimes things go wrong, and there aren't many violin makers in Iceland. Uh, but more or less, my whole career, I have m- made instruments, violins, violas, cellos, and double basses.
1: I've heard that living in a place like um, Iceland, because it's so far north in the winter, uh, there's, there's a real issue with depression. And I was just wondering what you thought about music uh, being an antidote for that.
0: I think it's absolutely uh I think you're right I think it's absolutely essential. Um the dark nights are very and dark nights associated with extreme weather uh tend to 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 a certain a certain number of population uh you know gets depressed uh as a uh, caused by that. But um those long nights are, you know, music is, music is definitely one of the things that <laughs> helps people out in those times. Um, but on the other hand, in the summertime, we have, you know, more or less two, 22 hours of sunlight. And um, so it, it balances out somehow. <laughs> and you make uh, musical instruments, which uh, the people can use. Yes, I've made quite a lot of instruments in Iceland, although I also have clients in Europe and America.
1: You used the word mystical a little bit ago. Um, yes. Could you talk about that, sort of the mystical aspect of the violin?
0: Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think, you know, there, there's obviously an, an incredible magic uh, associated with uh, stringed instruments, uh, bow, especially, I think, bowed stringed instruments. And I think it has to do with the way that the sound is produced and the actual shape of the thing, because it has obvious connotations to the human body. And it also has this voice, which, you know, just the nature of a bow uh, being drawn across the strings, uh, it, it, has a, it has a core tone to it, but it also has this kind of, uh, I don't know how to express it, it's like an airy, an airy tone that, is, that conjures up sort of mystical, mystical uh, um, ideas, I think. I think it's the I think it's the combination of the object having um, physical attributes and a voice that connects it to connects it to human beings. I know in in Norway
1: the uh, there's a lot of lore uh, mm-hmm. surrounding the hardong or fiddle and right. making arrangements with the trolls to learn how to play it in a certain way or with the devil. And um, in Ireland you have the fairies and stories about learning yeah. tunes from the fairies. Yeah. I sometimes think that these aren't just superstitious folk tales, but in a way, it's a it's a language, a coded language, to try to understand what our relationship might be with this invisible world.
0: I think you know when, when you talk about mysticism in relation to like violins, um, it's it's I think it's necessary to understand that, for example, I mean we have this we have this thing in Iceland. Uh, Icelandic people are said to believe in elves. And um, uh, and a lot of people do believe in elves, but it's if you think about it deeply on a, on a deep level, it's actually what it is is a kind of respect for nature, and and that's how how that manifests itself. And I think a similar kind of thing is happening with um, you know people's relationships to uh, to violins. So that um, um, the, what. What, what you could call a shamanistic uh, element that is always associated with these instruments is, um, is a reflection of something, you know, at a quite a deep level, which is um, not really obvious, but definitely there. Another thing which I find really interesting is that, um, despite the whole aura of mystique around surrounding violins, and when i say violins i mean all the, all the boat, stringed instruments um there's like there's there's a, an increasing uh, objective knowledge that's been gathered in the past 20 30 years that's opening up whole new whole new vistas of of knowledge about how the thing works and that's you know that's your objective knowledge of things it's it's an intellectual um, approach to what you're doing um, and I've always believed that uh, it's a bad idea to approach things from only one perspective like that and I th- I, I think it's a bad idea to look at violins from purely a scientific um, you know ob- objective way but um, but rather as an amalgamation of of um, you know that tacit Method of of making them by carving them by hand and and getting all uh, getting the emotional uh, part of it you know through to to your making and I think we, you know because of the, these instruments were uh, the instruments that were created in the Renaissance. They were being created in a time when there was an amalgamation of all kinds of knowledge. Like, if you were um, if you were a musician, you'd probably be involved with mathematics and astronomy, and it was like everything was sort of being mixed up. And I think that's what's happening again. I think that people are um, able to see violins in a much more coherent way because uh, we can see them in the you know from an intellectual point of view, but also you know, the uh, the sort of subjective, um, emotional way. And I think, so th- I think that's really basically the, the, the reason uh, why we're having a kind of a, a, rena- a renaissance in violin making again. I think, I really think violin making is becoming great again after, you know, maybe 200 years of, of kind of um, um, yeah, de- decline in a way. And uh, I think the making
1: of violins is sort of uh, contrary to the the thrust of our society today, which is about efficiency and replication. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's real old school and uh, but I also know that uh, they're using lasers to measure and cut out violins, and I'm uh, just wondering if what you know about that
0: Yes, but I mean you then you're losing you you cannot go purely by measurements because the wood is is your boss, the, the, the wood is is determining the outcome in a way. So it's just the 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 real test of your talent is how uh, how well you can allow the wood to be behave in the way that you want it to. But it uh, but uh, in the end, it's the wood that really actually determines how, how the thing is going to be made mostly uh, to do with um, archings and and thicknessings. I think a lot about
1: how we grow wood today in the the world, the modern world, the techniques that are used and so forth. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering if that degrades the quality of the wood uh, for its use in instruments like the violin.
0: I don't really think so. I think that the the rapid growth uh, would possibly be um, beneficial. (laughs) because you would get let you'll get a material that's less dense um i think i think the future is going to hold a lot of of you know new new keys to that because we know we we're starting to learn so much about the material properties that really weren't that known you know maybe 50 years ago um and i think you know for example an amalgamation of different materials are, is going to happen i think people are going to you know start using you know naturally grown wood in association with other possibly uh, synthetic materials. and I, I don't I don't see that as being a negative thing. I think uh, I think there's you know vast possibilities of you know that we that we haven't checked out yet. so we're here at
1: David's house. He's got his instruments laid out on the piano and have the uh, bass of Spain It's just incredibly beautiful instruments. yeah and I'd like to know what it's like for you to travel here from Iceland. And have an opportunity to see these instruments up close, mm. to be able to handle them and, and inspect them.
0: Having the possibility to to be here today and examine these instruments is um, an incredible uh, opportunity. Because, and especially because these in, the instruments that we've been watching today, they are in a you know pristine condition. There are many, many other well known instruments all over the world that have been. Subjected to incredible amounts of restoration and um, re- replacements of wood and so on. Um, but the, one, the, the instruments that I've been looking at today are, are an exception to that rule. They are really in pristine condition. That's why it's such an amazing opportunity to, to study them.
1: Let's take a moment now to listen to a piece of music composed by Bach, played on a cello made by Hans Johansson. Malcolm Gladwell uh, wrote a book called Blink. I don't know if you've read it. It's um, it's it's real cool. It, he looks at this ability that human beings seem to have, with this the briefest look at something, just you know, very momentary, they can understand really what it is and quite accurately, where their rational mind, in fact, uh, might give them a very different picture of what it is. Um, he talks about this um, particular Greek statue that someone was going to buy at the Getty Museum. And um, they uh, they had all the scientists come and do all the tests. And and they said, yeah, this is it. This, this is really a, the real deal. Mm-hmm. And then this uh, art expert in Greek art came in and just one momentary look at it, he said, oh, it's a fake. Right. And sure enough, every expert they brought in said the mm-hmm. same thing. No, it's a fake. So uh, I'm just wondering what you think of that.
0: It's, uh, it's really incredible that um, I, for example, I'm, I've been making violins all my life, so I'm not a violin expert. I mean, I, I'm more of an expert than uh, many other people, but uh, that's not my specialty. But nonetheless, when I, when I study the old instruments, uh, it's this question of, you know, when you see the tool marks, and you see the hand, you know. They, that's what people say when they when they are describing a scroll or or an f hole that they that they uh, recognize as being by some particular maker. They'll say that's the hand of so and so, and that's. I think that's a really really nice way of putting it because you actually are seeing a tracing of someone's hand, you know, three hundred years ago, and that's really particular and and extraordinary.
1: Little earlier, you were showing me the back of the cello yeah. that David has here.
0: It's called the bass of Spain. You were pointing out the tiny nicks and dents, and what do those teach you? Well, in, in um, most, like in well, let me let me start again. Um, these instruments were originally coated with a with a homogeneous layer of colored varnish on top, which is uh, ex- Actually, extremely thin, and should be so because it, if it's too thick or too heavy, it can it can detract from the uh, the actual vibra- vibratory you know characteristics of the instrument. But once once that very thin veil of colored varnish starts to wear away, then you get graduations of color as it wears through different layers, and then you, when when N- little nicks and scratches and dents are added here and there in a uh, you know in an old object. Two things happen. On the one hand, uh, purely aesthetically, um, when when the eye is subjected to a surface that is a one homogeneous color, there's nothing much going on. but when you, when it's subjected to a surface that has many many like little details, uh, that are obvious, then the eye is jumping all over the place and all of a sudden it's much more interesting. Another thing that happens is the second thing that I wanted to say was that every little nick and scratch on a 300 year old object, whether it's a musical instrument or a tool or something, tells you the story of some, someone touching it or using it. And there's a, there's a, a very, very potent magic associated with that. And, uh, uh, today, uh, many violin makers are making new instruments, but they have a worn look, and they have, and there's a, uh, there's a, there's a, I, I'd say almost um, um, a fashion to make them look as the old instruments do, and you could say that it's uh, that is the case because uh, musicians have, you know. Have had a preference for old instruments, but it's not entirely true. It's almost an art form in itself, because uh, what you're doing is you're you're creating something that looks like an old object, and the and the object is to um, well, there was a, there was a, there was a wasn't it Coleridge who came up with the term uh, suspension of disbelief. It's like when you go to the theater and you know and you know that the set is totally artificial and it can even look corny or wrong or something um you allow yourself to forget that part of it because you're you're going to jump into the game of of being in in the theater and and absorbing yourself into the story and the same thing happens with making these uh, sort of antique finishes on instruments is that even though you know that it's an artificial uh, aging, you allow yourself to be fooled for a while because it's beautiful. So it's like an aesthetic that's dependent on, um, yeah, almost fooling yourself. And it's and it's a, I find it a fascinating psychological um, like aspect of these things. So it's not to me it's not like making a corny piece of an antiqued furniture. It's almost, it's an art form in itself.
1: I've never heard it explained that
0: way. It's fascinating. Do you antique your instruments? Just some of them. I, normally I make instruments that are just look new. Yeah. How many instruments have you made? I made, i probably made, I don't know, four five hundred instruments in all. I'd say probably something like that.
1: Are there any instruments that you sold that uh, later you wished you still had? Uh, maybe they had some kind of claim on you
0: <laughs> i when I see my first instruments i I often think ah oh, that would that would be nice in a cupboard somewhere, but no, I don't think so they they all have their i mean it takes so many years to be able to just get pretty good at this. You know you really need three lifetimes to get to become brilliant really. Because you spend the first ten years, is just learning how to make the thing. I mean, just from a craftsmanship point of view. You might learn, you might you might learn the 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 techniques and the tools and the and the the, the method. You know, three or four years in a school environment, for example, or or with learning studying as an apprentice with someone. Then it takes you another five years to get, you know really happy with that situation and, and feel that you're, you're getting good at it, you know, but then, uh, that's just the, that's just the making of the box. And then the question, uh, or, um, comes up, uh, how do you make the thing sound? And then you have to really, you have to, you have to put an enormous amount of energy into, uh, listening to the finest instruments you can get your hands on and, and then studying the way they behave. And, uh, it's an empirical, it's like a tacit empirical way of learning things. Um, although now in, in, in the past 10 or 15 years, I've been using computers to help me do that. But, but that's not, they, you'll never be able to make a violin as a you know, piece of art from just using machines or computers. But the, the computer actually does manage to dispel a lot of myths. For example, I mean, uh, before I saw live animations of how a violin vibrates at, at every frequency, um, I imagined the whole thing much more differently in my mind. It, it wasn't based on anything real. Um, now you can say, that the finest instrument makers in the world never had any technology, which I don't really think is true, because if you look back into the Renaissance era, the um, um, you know you can find you can find uh, descriptions of Leonardo da Vinci when where he's uh, actually um, has some sand or powder on a table and is hitting it with a hammer and looking t- where where the powder would coagulate and so on. So they were they were. They they had a a very basic, but a very, I would say, you know, quite sophisticated way of looking at things even back then. But I'm not against using technology and science. And I I think you should try to um, consolidate, you know, intellectual and emotional part of the whole thing. I think that's the key.
1: When we first met, you mentioned to me that some of the work you do is commission work.
0: Mm-hmm. Can you tell me what
1: that's like for you?
0: It's quite interesting really because then you have to you have to put yourself in the shoes of whoever is asking you to make an instrument and they have or they all have personal preferences and they have different techniques of playing and you have to sort of you have to look at uh, how they you have to actually ask the person to play for you and see, you know, how, how, what the bow technique is and so on. So I used to generally put people into two categories, pushers and pullers. So a lot of people, uh, for example, on the East Coast of America are pushers because they use their body to force the sound out of the instrument. And then in, in uh, let's say, England or Belgium or um, other places in Europe, there's a, there's a school of playing where, where you entice the instrument to resonate on its own. And all this you have to take into account when you make an instrument for someone. And, uh, for example, for a pusher, I would, you know, I would probably make an instrument that had more solidity in the in the making of it. You know, that had more resistance, so that you know, no matter how hard you push the thing, it would, you know, it would stand up to that pressure. Whereas for somebody who is enticing the instrument to resonate, I would po- possibly make an instrument that is slightly thinner in places, and, you know, more easily able to resonate on its own. So you must have an ability
1: to store that kind of understanding. And uh, do you ever videotape somebody playing so you could look at it later and
0: analyze it? Well, you know, I think human beings have an incredible uh, aptitude for um, uh, discerning, you know, from sound certain characteristics. For example... Just one little example on an on an old style eight bit telephone. You, your uncle with a terrible cold could have called you from Japan twenty years ago, and you would recognize his voice immediately. And um, sometimes when you when people play, you you just in the first seconds you can tell what kind of player they are, and that's often the 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 evaluation that is closest to the reality. You know, you could study, you know, for a long time. I think. But I, th- I think, generally speaking, the best um, evaluations are the ones that come quickly and straight away. Well, that's the
1: idea in Malcolm Gladwell's book, uh, Blink.
0: Oh, yeah.
1: You just, you just get it. In fact, there's a, an interesting study that was done in, in Europe where they recorded babies within mm. only a few hours of their birth. And these were French babies and German babies. And they recorded their cry and they found that uh, almost all the German babies, the end of their cry went down. And all the French babies, the inflection of the cry went up, <laughs> which I think is like really cool. So the idea that these babies went in utero, their ears were already attuning themselves to this, the sound of the, that language because they want to bond with these parents and these people in this world so that they'll be safe and taken care of. Yeah. That's amazing.
0: So, when you get a commission, um, what works? What doesn't? Yeah. Well, unfortunately, many times uh, people who uh, I make instruments for, I never meet. For example, if uh, if if the instrument goes to a dealer somewhere, and I, I'm never in direct contact with the the player, and that's terrible. And it's re- it's really like a shot in the dark. I would much rather much rather have a you know direct. Uh, contact with people, and do it on a more personal level. But, you know, you have to go with what opportunities you have.
1: You know, I, I really understand what you're talking about. I'm, I'm a storyteller, and, yeah. and uh, I love having that audience. I, I can read immediately what they're feeling yeah. in the story, and I can kind of go here and go there. I can respond with them. Then I became a writer, And uh, that's a whole different thing. You're sending your children out into the world and you never see them again. They just kind of go out there and Mm -hmm. you don't get to see people enjoying them or responding to them. Mm. Is it your goal, uh, the ideal, to make the perfect violin? Oh, that's a good
0: question. Because what we have is we have a culture. And we have the culture of stringed instruments. And we have what is considered great. And this is not trivial. Some people would say, "Well, that's being stuck in the past and all this." But um, I've been—I ma- have made, you know, experimental instruments that are based on, I mean, violins, violas, cellos that are based on 20th-century architecture and not Baroque ar- architecture. And uh, but the goal, the the you know, what is a great sound and what is a mediocre sound? Um, it's kind of people know it. You know, it's obvious when you hear a mediocre instrument, you hear it straight away. And uh, it doesn't have to do with the, the building of the instrument really. It has to do with the culture that's been made. If I were to make um, a totally wacky stringed instrument, um, it could be an interesting sound, but it, I would have to create a whole new culture around it for, for it to be important. And I mean, if, I, if I manage to make a, a whole new culture around it and gather, you know, thousands of people to, you know, actually get, sort of create a cult around it, that might become important. But what is important is with the finest instruments that we have in the world are the ones, you know, that are on a par with the, 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 the great instruments made in Italy in the, in the 17th and 18th centuries. So, so that would be the ideal, uh, I mean, you have to have a goal. Um, but I, I like to fool around with making other kinds of instruments. I, for example, I met uh, a young Finnish composer who said, who told me, he, he said, wouldn't it be great to have six violins, and they all sounded kind of terrible, but when you played them together, they would make a harmonious whole that would that sounded wonderful. I thought it was kind of a good idea. <laughs> but... Um,
1: so each one brings something to the party.
0: Yeah, like, like organ stops, you know.
1: Uh, do you experiment with your designs? Um, I mean, I, I often think of people who go to violin school. Yes. Part of what they get from going to the school is the patterns of those old right. classic
0: violins. Well, from the very start, when I left school, I decided to, to draw everything that I made because that's what the old masters did. They would, they would work on the, the model of their master, uh, uh, and then immediately on leaving, on on uh, the f- you know when their apprenticeship was finished, they would immediately start making their own models. And I think that's lacking today. I think there are people doing it, and uh, but most people um, copy known instruments. And you know, in, for an educational purpose, copying a known instruments is a very very good idea. But once you get good. I think, you know, people should start to create their own aesthetic. Because that's what the finest instrument makers in the world have done. And if you slavishly copy something the whole time, it's, uh, the, the, that culture is bound to just collapse at some point. What does it mean to draw? Design. With a compass and a, and a straight edge and a, and a pencil. Do you use the golden mean? Um, I mean, is that like a principle you fall back upon? Yes, I, I use I use proportional, you know, geometry, as the old Italian masters did. Similarly, although what I do is, I begin by using these proportions which are very harmonious, and then I I use a lot of freehand drawing in between. So it's like I'm not bound by the the compass, um, and I don't. I actually don't think that. Uh, you know, the reason why the Italian masters used geometrical drawing, I think, was to expedite the the teaching to their students uh, how to replicate things easily and quickly. Because they had to make a living also. I don't think it was... Uh, and I think, for example, you can see it on some of Stradivari's forms that he's changing things, little things, all the time. And ev- even changing molds, you know cutting away a little bit here adding a bit there so he's actually using his eye to to manipulate what is already has been geometrically decided do you think he takes as a guide the piece of wood that he's working with no i think that's i think the aesthetics of the um of the violin is um a almost a platonic ideal of baroque architecture All the forms on a violin are pure Baroque architecture. Um, So I don't think the the wood, the wood is, when a maker chooses his wood, uh, he he throws it on the floor to see how it rings and then cuts it in accordance to that, you know, something like that. Uh, So the wood is actually, like I've said, is... Deciding in a way how, how you're going to work it, it's telling you how to shape it. Uh, but the shapes and the forms that that's more an ide- ideological, you know. Um, I think I think it's an ideological, you know, like almost a like a Platonic ideal of a nice shape from that period in history. You know, there's got to be something universal in that uh,
1: in that shape. I mean, it, it must appeal to some part of our psyche.
0: Well, the, the harmonic proportion, you know, the, 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 you find that everywhere in nature. So it's you know it seems to be it seems to be created to to be look nice. Tell me now about your wood pile,
1: um, where you got the wood, uh, when you got it, mm-hmm. and if you can
0: get really good wood today. I have I have a, a good stock of of spruce, probably. Enough to last my my lifetime. Um, I'm still on the lookout always for for good maple. It's very difficult. It's getting more and more difficult to find the really good good uh, good wood. Um, I don't believe you need to um, uh, dry the wood for longer than ten years, approximately. Um, but the quality of the, of the annular rings on the maple, for example, has to be really exceptional. And to find pieces like that is, very, is getting very difficult. And um, so, you know, I, the search continues. Um, and I think it's going to be increasingly scarce in the future because of the way, you know, forests are being um, uh, depleted and so on. Um, at some point, you know, a few years ago, uh, I think we probably had more choice of fine wood than the uh, old Italian masters had. But um, the the old growth trees that have very um, tightly packed uh, annular rings in the maple is getting very scarce. Um, so you have uh, what they call peak oil. Yes.
1: So I guess there's also peak maple.
0: <laughs> yeah. What impact is China having on the trade of uh, violin wood? You know, the Chinese, uh, amazingly, um, have turned around their whole ideology and are now thinking in terms of um, sustainability. And they've stopped the uh, the selling of their uh, maple for instrument making. So it's it all stays in China. Whereas a few years ago, um, Europeans would buy loads of it. And, but the Chinese are turning around that that um, ideology of um, you know preservation and uh, sustainability. And how committed are the Chinese to the future of the violin? Oh, in, immensely. Yeah, they have they have they're um, they're getting better at making all the time. There are some real fine uh, Chinese makers. Of course, there's a, there's an amazing uh, number of fine players being you know coming out of China. I heard a report
1: recently about how many more Chinese people have perfect pitch as compared mm. to Europeans or Americans. Mm. Um, it said that they think it's because their language is uh,
0: more musical. Oh, yeah. Well, I'm not sure perfect pitch is a great idea for musicians to have because I think it's all relative. And I think it and, and people that I know who have perfect pitch complain about it because... It's a nightmare to play with a piano that's slightly out of tune and so forth. But um but um I think I think uh Asian people have a slightly different um aesthetic tonal aesthetic when it comes to violin tone. I think they 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 um appreciate um a slightly more nasal uh sound. And um this is just an idea if I'm not sure if it's correct, but you know, when you listen to their traditional music, you know, the Be- Beijing opera and so on, their whole musical aesthetic is it's uh tim- timbrally or temperally or how do you say it? Uh slightly different from from the aesthetics of the west. What's your thoughts about uh electric violins? I'm I'm do- I'm doing a project with um professor of uh, digital signal processing in Manchester in England. And we're making electric instruments that um, have an inbuilt convolution filter, which means that you you record a tap from a very fine instrument, just of, of you know, ten, twenty milliseconds of of a, a, a tap from from a fine instrument. You use that to make a digital filter, and then you convolve the two the signal the raw signal from the string, from the bowed string, and you convolve that with the uh, the the spectra of a really fine instrument, and that's what you get out. That's your output, and it sounds fantastic.
1: Yeah, I've seen this
0: with uh, guitar amplifiers. You can dial in, you know, famous amps of the past. Right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. They call it modeling more than that in the guitar world. Yeah. It's a similar kind of approach. And how is it different then between a, a bowed instrument and a plucked instrument? Well, because the uh, the origin of the sound is is based on different, you know, um, when you bow a string, it, you get more or less a pure, uh, w- a sawtooth waveform, which contains all the even and odd harmonics in an exponential decay. And, um, yeah, well, that's just one of the projects. It's really, really exciting. Yeah. yeah I've made, we made, um, I made a six string fretted cello electric cello that is small enough to put in your hand luggage on a plane. And it sounds, you know, when you, when you play it through the, the, um, the convolution filter, it sounds glorious. It's just like a great cello. That's through the amplifier and, and speaker. Yes. But I've, I've also done experiments. I did one in 2007. I did a sound installation. An electric violin was playing through a small amplifier that was routed to eight uh, wooden sculptures that were, and no speakers involved anywhere, just um, uh, um, um, electromagnetic drivers. So, if you can imagine a speaker without the paper cone. So, it, um, I hooked the electric violin up to, uh, like I say, wooden resonators, which were like sound boxes, if you like, but all different shapes, and spread them around in a space. And then, because each of them had their had its own frequency response, when you did when you do glissando, you slide the, the your finger up and down the string, the, the, the tone would go between the resonators because they each they only played their you know their response, so it was like playing on the space. That was quite a lot of fun. Where'd you do this? In London at the Serpentine Gallery, two thousand seven. Uh, did it with um, with an architect and an artist. I find that those people, architects and artists, have a totally open mind. Whereas musicians and violin makers have slightly, uh, what do you call those things you put on horses? They have blinkers on. Yeah.
1: (laughs) Well, thank you very much, Hans, for the conversation. I've really enjoyed it. Thank you for listening to Rosin the Bow, an audio journey through the world of the violin family. Rosin the Bow is produced by Joe and Paula McHugh in the studios of the Raven Radio Theater. Our theme music was arranged and performed by the string quartet, the Fretless. To learn more about the Rosin the Bow project and to listen to additional podcasts, please visit our website, RosintheBow.org. Before I say goodbye, let me thank David Fulton for his warm hospitality to share with you a quote by a passionate violinist who, I should say, also happened to be a scientist of note. His name is Albert Einstein. The pursuit of truth and beauty is a sphere of activity in which we are permitted to remain children all our lives.